You must be able to acknowledge by now that we will never be able to understand or comprehend or get our heads around everything that the Buddha taught. Not in this lifetime. Not in any lifetime. And even if you put all the time together from now till the time you exit samsara, it's still not enough time to understand and comprehend the depth of everything that the Buddha taught us. So why do I say this? It's because every week we take one step, two steps, three steps, a few steps forward into this vast ocean. Its depths are unfathomable. The further you go, the deeper it gets. And the deeper it gets, the further you can go. So there is no end to this. So again, why do I say this? It's because this can be very appealing. This is very appetizing. It's very interesting. <coughs> we need to ensure that we understand why it is that we are taking these steps into this ocean. It is not our objective to try and understand how deep the ocean is. That is not our intention. Only a Buddha can ever understand that. Our intention is to bathe ourselves and wash ourselves, cleanse ourselves, just enough to do that. It is not enough then to just go knee deep or ankle deep because then that is all we have washed, that is all we have cleansed. So you'll need to go just enough so that the last strand of hair that you have, I don't anymore, you have, is submerged in water. Because once you get there, that's it, your job is done. And if that is what, two feet into the water, then so be it. Ten feet for others, then so be it. But if you know that you are, your job is now done, that is it. There is no need to venture into this vast ocean because we are not discoverers. We don't need to be explorers. It has already been explored. It has already been discovered. There is nothing to explore or discover. The path is, is very clear. So every week we talk about these concepts, right? what is Anicca, and every week we try and give it more color, more depth, and various examples and metaphors and similes and whatnot. Right? But all of this is for that one purpose. Remember, the very question I keep asking you, yourselves as well as any new audience, what are we here for? What are we here for? Happiness. We're here for happiness. And when you know you have achieved it, then you must know that you have achieved what you're here for. Don't stay, don't linger after you've got what you want. You don't need to proceed any further. As monks, we have a little bit of extra work to do because it is our task to study the Dhamma. So we spend time reading the scriptures and listening to various talks and exploring and analyzing and reflecting and contemplating <clears throat> for more than just our own understanding. 
because it is our task, our job to explain the Dhamma to others and for different people it can be different suttas. For different people it can be different points that will actually help them make sense of it. But that is our job, that is what we are here for. But as followers or listeners or you know, disciples, if our task is to achieve Nibbana, salvation, happiness, then it is sufficient to know enough to get your job done. Once your job is done, that's it. I think it's a very important point. Because otherwise what will happen is you get entangled in the Dhamma. And sometimes the Dhamma can become a, an interesting discussion point. I'm not saying that it has happened to anyone in particular, but I'm saying it is, it is, I think I should be responsible. As we deliver the discourses, it is also responsible, it should be responsible, or my responsibility, to remind you that, you know, this is how you have to use it. You know, here are the tools, and this is how you have to use it. It's not enough to just say, here are the tools. Go do whatever you like with it. Always keep your compass Check that you're always going north. Right? Always have your compass with you. What am I here for? Plenty of time, lifetimes in this sansara, ladies and gentlemen, we, have, we will have listened to talks, analyzed it, right? gone to various lectures, studied even maybe the Abhidhamma. This is not the first Buddha we've come across. But on each occasion, what we failed to do was to internalize the teaching. That is why being here and listening to the talks is important. But what is just as important, if not more so, is your application of it. One of the main reasons that we are here full-time, you know, we do this full-time, right? You do it part-time. The reason that we are here full-time is we give ourselves no choice. We give ourselves no choice but application, application of these principles. That is what coming here and being here does to you. Because you have no other vents for your vexations. Well, whilst you are here, you know, even if you are here as a Sravika or Srila Vesi, while you are here, there is no other vexation. You know, like say, you come on a Wednesday morning and you feel like, I don't know, I should, maybe I want to watch some TV. You can't watch TV now. You are here. You are in the program. You'll have to wait at least until you get home, won't you? If you feel like, you know, today I want to try something different, maybe try something interesting, try, uh, you know, this rice and curry business is not doing for me, I want to try something exciting. I will go and do some sushi. Well, you're going to have to wait at least until you get home. And if you are a sila Sravika, then you're here all week, right? So you'll have to wait until... Well, whenever you get your weekend to try it. By that time, maybe the shops are closed. <laughs> then you have to leave the Shavika program and join the Vesi program. <laughs> so you can keep, make yourselves available while the sushi bars are kept open. In any case, right, when you're here, this, you know, what we do is we artificially close all the other gates. It is artificial, yes, but we close all the other gates 
and leave just one path open. When Buddha laid down his code of conduct, that is exactly what he did. All other doors are open. There is only one path to exit, one exit route. So it's us down to us to make our exit strategy. But our exit strategy, strategy, beg your pardon, our exit strategy should not involve looking for other exit routes. That is not a very prudent exit strategy. It is to ensure that we find the right path and walk down that path. That is what anicca, dukkha, and anatta are for. That is what the Buddha's teachings are for. The reason that we progress week on week, I speak about myself personally, as, as well as all the other monks here, and Anagarikas and Anagarikas and all of us, right? The reason that we progress week on week is because when vexations surface in our mind, we don't look for other events. It is those who engage themselves in that practice who will proceed and make, make good on this journey and achieve victory. Whenever we look for other exit paths, whenever we look for... It's like a rash. If you have a rash on your arm, every time you scratch it, what does it do to you? Does it make, help you get it better or does it make it worse? Makes it worse, doesn't it? But there's, there's some medicine which you can apply on it. Even when you apply it, it's still, you, know, you still have that, 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 that uh, sensation of an itch, but you don't, you don't scratch yourself. You put the ointment, you put the cream, and you just keep on doing that. Every time you scratch it, it only gets worse. And that is a very fitting analogy to this path on the Dhamma. Every time you scratch your rash, <laughs> whether that is pleasing your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue or your body, every time you do that, you are taking another exit path. That is why the Buddha says, Kanti Paraman Tapo Titika. He says, practice patience. Practice patience, but not just patience for patience sake. Practice patience and then reflect on the Dhamma. That's why he says, Nibbana, I have preached to you. Nibbana, Paraman Vadanti Buddha. The Buddha has preached the Dhamma. He has, he has given you what Nibbana, he has given you Nibbana. So having given you Nibbana, then what is left for us to do? When those vexations surface in our mind, practice patience and then contemplate on the Dhamma. What do most people do? When those vexations surface in their mind, they don't practice patience. They just relieve themselves. And if you always relieve yourself, then there is no need to practice the Dhamma, is there? Because vexation doesn't build up. So what's the, what's the need to practice the Dhamma? So that's the thing. Now, today we will probably make further inroads into understanding our, or deepening and furthering our understanding of Anicca It will be more Dhamma, more and more, more points, more interesting points, more ways of contemplating and reflecting on it. What's important is, when you leave this room, when those vexations surface in your mind, you apply them. I can't do that part on your behalf, I'm sorry about that. Guru Handro reminds us about this all the time. Always tells us, you may have come here listening to my voice and you want to attain Nibbana, and whoever you are, monks, anagarikas or anagarikas, if you don't practice what I preach you, 
you are not going to get anything out of this. And it is so true. Whatever I have been able to achieve so far, whatever little I have been able to achieve so far on this journey, is because of my practice. That is why I urge all of you, in whatever capacity you are able to do this, whatever that capacity might be, do your 100%. Your 100% need not be the 100% of the person sat next to you. It needn't be that. You know the story of the hare and the tortoise. Who did the 100%? Yes. The tortoise did the 100%. So who won the race? Not the hare. Tortoise did. But what did the hare do? Slept. They didn't do their 100%. But couldn't they run faster? Oh, much faster. The hare runs like a lightning bolt in comparison to the tortoise. But what did they achieve? Not much at all. Only a sense of pride that I can do more than you. And then it rested on its laurels. We mustn't do that. Make sense? Because I don't know what I'm going to talk about today. Something will come up. But I am certain that it will take us further into the ocean of Dhamma. And you'll be very, you'll be very wet by the, by the end of this sermon. Always make sure that you have your bearing straight, you have your compass with you, you know why you're here, and then none of this will just, you know, will just be, you know, it won't just, you know, blow your heads if you're here with purpose. It'll make sense. Right, so before we do that then, let us all take a moment to pay homage to the glorious one, the magnificent one, our teacher, our master, and our guide. The most noble one, the supremely enlightened one. He who laid down this path for our salvation. And he who wanted us to achieve this liberation for ourselves and do the same to help others. Let us take a moment to pay veneration to his holy name. Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhassa Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arahato are you all into this 100%? Not my 100%, your 100%. Are you? Hand on heart? Is this an honest answer? Or 50-50? Bring a friend? If you are doing your 100%, then you will, ensure, you will enjoy freedom. You must be able to talk about how much you have freed yourself in comparison to some time ago. 
you must be able to experience that joy, that lightness. Not light-mindedness, you know, not light-headedness, but just lightness. Lightness from burdens. The problems will be the same outside. They won't change. Same obstacles, same challenges, they'll be the same. Your approach will be very different though. Things won't bother you as much. This, this is what you're striving for. This is what you're here in the sasana for. To be able to live the rest of your life peacefully. We don't believe in rest in peace after death. You know, even animals can do that. But our rest in peace must come before death. So that we can enjoy what the great Arahants did during their reign on this planet. Last week we talked about, what did we talk about? An object of desire, yes. We talked about an object of desire. And how when something that you desire surfaces in your mind, you can contemplate on that. Buddhist philosophy is to realize there is nothing you need to do in addition to that. Of course, there's a practice, like the practice helps you earn merits and to train yourself, but all this comes with a realization. The, the, you, you, you further your practice so that your realization is improved, it sharpens, your wisdom sharpens. And the further your wisdom sharpens, your practice gets better. So they support each other. Now, did you get some time at home? I mean, when do you find the time at home to find an, a, an object of your desire and then contemplate on that? It's only when desire comes into the mind, right? And when does that happen? Very rarely, no? Hmm? Hardly at all. So much so that you have to wait until Saturday morning to think of you know, an object of your desire. No, it's very difficult, these Saturday sermons now. Because Swami Nuhansi asks us to remind us, remind ourselves about an object of our desire, and you know, we don't have any of these things anymore. So I have to write something down and bring it <laughs> to the class. Is it getting that difficult now? To come up with something, an object of your desire, or are there plenty of them still? Only you should know that. So let's just quickly remind ourselves how we agree to approach these problems. Remember when we talked about Ragadesha and Moha last week? We put particular emphasis on Moha, didn't we? Moha because that is the taint or the canker in the mind that creates this imaginary world we call it an imaginary world because, in fact, you imagine it. And in that world, you have these fixed things, fixed entities, unified objects. And when these objects surface in your mind, now you have to deal with them. So you either like them or you dislike them. 
or you have to compare them with another. So these three manifestations, the liking, disliking or the comparison, is all based in this one thing that where in your mind you separate something. So whatever an object of your desire might be, right? So let's take a then we'll go into how we contemplate on something that brings us anger. I was meaning to do it last week, but we didn't have enough time left at the end of it. An object of your desire. So this is the fire of desire. Whatever that object is. This fire is not inherent in the object, because if it was, then it would have that effect on everyone, wouldn't it? It's not. For some people, they like things, like these roses, for instance. Some of you, you know, you'll think this is, or you, you'll perceive this, them to be very beautiful. Others may not like roses. But in any case, you see a rose. And when you see a rose as a fixed object, now your mind has to do something with it. Either you have to fight it, right, or to endear yourself with it. These are all partly part of the drushti that comes into your mind. Now, there could be a question like this that sometimes surfaces in your mind, and that is, when we take on these views about the world, take ignorance, when we take on these views about the world, Anicca, Dukkha and Anatta, The most basic of these views is that there are fixed entities in this world. And once you take on this view, then your mind's objective becomes to experience them. So a question can come up like this. If ignorance is about, is is this view that there are fixed entities in this world, then why are we looking for specific things? Because anything will do the job, won't it? So, for instance, you know, all of these things you see around you, the furniture, the flowers, right, they're all, you perceive them as entities. If you perceive all of these things as entities, then why do you need to go a step further and then have or take on these views that there are certain things in this world, in particular, which give you more pleasure than others? Because if that is ultimately the mind's objective, to see fixed entities in this world, then why not anything? Anything does the job. So why do we need to go after particular things? Why do we have particular interests? Other people, you know, that's how we differ from each other. We have these things called preferences, don't we? Mentally, if we ask, even, you know, two twins, if we ask them what makes you different, physically they both look the same, But mentally they'll say, my preferences are different to my brothers or my sisters. I like different things to him or her. And why is that? Because if the mind's ultimate desire is to experience this fixed nature and therefore that relieves itself from vexation, then why do we need a further object? Why do we need a specific object? 
So why is it that, you know, someone in the room might like pizza, someone else might like chocolate, someone else might like cake, and others might like biscuit, or others might like pudding? Why is that? Because if all are fixed objects, then, you know, we should be able to just be happy with just one object, because it's fixed. Does this not prob problem not come to you from time to time? So now, you, I know you'll already have an answer to this, partly. You'll say that is because of drushti. You'll say it's because this is how I've been indoctrinated. I grew up thinking that chocolate was nice. My, my father always used to come home from work and bring me a chocolate, and so I used to like chocolates, and I, that is how I grew up. My mother used to bake cakes at home, so I used to have cakes, and those cakes, I en enjoyed my, my formative years, in my formative years, and therefore I grew up learn, liking cake. And you'll have various answers to these questions. See, but then why, where did that come from? Where did this dushti come from? Why does it come as a pair? Why is it that we can't just take on purely the pure drishti that things are nitya? Why does it have to come with another object? The answer is in the question. The answer to your question is in your question. See, sorry? Yes, so when you, when you think about Fixed objects, when you think about fixedness, okay, if someone gives you this drushti, this view that there are fixed things in this world, then they have to be talking about something, mustn't they? Non-fixedness is not an attribute of an object. Or anicca is not an attribute of an object. Is it? See, because if I ask you, what is anicca? As in not give me a definition of anicca, give me an example of anicca. If I ask you this question, what would you give me? You can't give me any examples. Because the moment you come up with an example, then you're, you're thinking of that object. Yeah. So if you say this, this bouquet of flowers is anicca, now you're talking about a bouquet of flowers and you're saying this nature thing is anicca. If you say, if you give me this pen and say, this is Anicca, then again you say, I ask you, which one? This pen. Right, so you're talking about a pen, this Nicca thing is Anicca. That is what you're saying. So when I ask for examples of Anicca, you can't give me any. But if I ask you for examples of Nicca, well, Nicca by its very definition means that there are fixed things in this world. So how do you explain the concept of, isn't this why explaining Anicca is so difficult? Anicca, dukkha and anatta. Dukkha, so-so. Anicca and anatta. Right? Explaining these, these two concepts are incredibly difficult because we, are, we live in a, in a physical world, in a materialistic world, and to use material things and then to say, this is anicca. What is the, what is the thought that comes into your mind? Ah, okay, so when I say this, this pen is anicca, absolutely, because it has a clip, it has a body, it has a nib, Right? It has a barrel inside in which it, there must be some ink. Right? So yes, I understand. These parts come together to make the pen. Again, you're talking about the parts that come together to make the pen. So the, pen, the parts that make the pen are Nietzsche. So then I ask you, no, wait, the, the, the clip, talk about the Nietzsche nature of this. Oh yes, this is made of molecules. So then science will help you to dismantle this into its constituent molecules. And then say, okay, so it's the molecules that are, that are, you know, these are the elementary particles. 
Isn't this what science does? Science's objective is to go finding the elementary part, the most basic particles. So when Rutherford find, found the, the atom, he was very pleased about, with himself. And so every, you know, it was a big hoo-ha. Everyone was thrilled about the fact that they had discovered the most basic particle. And then what happened? Then they split it up again. <laughs> so science will always have something left to do, unfinished business. Because they'll keep on trying to split it up into its elementary particles, into its constituent particles, to try and discover this particle that which cannot be split. The most basic particle. They'll keep on looking for it. That is why through science you can't attain Nibbana. There you go. So you can't be a good physicist and you know, study your physics to the nth degree and at that point you become an Arahant. It doesn't work like that. Because you're talking about, you're learning the characteristics of fixed objects. Even when you think that it is made up of something else, those something else's are fixed. Like what if then you say, no, it's all energy. Right? So some smart guy will come along and say, well, it's not matter, it's all energy. Well, then the energy is fixed. Because you're talking about a fixed form of energy. Uh, here's a bit of energy. That energy is fixed. I'm not talking about the physical arrangement of things. I'm talking about the perception that you have. The perception that you have that energy, there is something called energy. The perception that you have that there is something called matter. This is what gets in the way of you attaining Nibbana. Because then the moment you start talking about or rather perceiving fixed entities, you are leaving Nibbana by the wayside. Because you have ignored the concept of anicca. That is why, as a chemist, or a biologist, or as a physicist, you can't realize Nibbana by following that path to the end. So, if, you know, like I used to be, I used to think when well, science has the answer to everything. So, why do we bother with spirituality? Why do we bother with religion? Why do we bother with these teachings, you know? Science has the answer to everything. You have you use a scientific method, you know, and if you come up with hypo- hypotheses, and you, you test those hypotheses, and eventually you get to the answer. Well, I kept doing it, but I never realized Nibbana. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. So, you could say that you know, science will eventually get to the Buddhist, Buddhist philosophy. Yes, if science stops dealing with its study of material things in this world. Science is always the study of that, right? It's, it's the study of... Material things. It's a study of energy. It's a study of mass and energy. Matter and energy. That's what science is. It comes in various forms. And as long as its study is about fixed things, that is not Nibbana. That is not Anicca. So you are miles away from that. So that, that is why when we talk about Anicca, we struggle. How do you explain to someone Something's anicca when it's not the thing that is anicca. Because if you ask me, give me an example of uh, of of black, I can I can tell you. See, this is black. If you ask me an example of, give me an example of weight, I can say this is a mass, and in the force of gravity, it has weight. I can use objects, you know, day to day, everyday objects. I can use something in the room and talk, talk to you about it. Give me an example of 
of height, width, length, breadth. I can give you examples of that. But when you ask me for an example of anicca, what do I what do I bring you? This can only be explained through similes and metaphors. Because I can't show you something and say this is anicca. Because it is not. Of course, all things are manifestations. But what we need to get our heads around is the fact that it is not an object that is anicca. Anicca-ness is reality. We are not talking about the adjective anicca, we are talking about the noun anicca. Because what is an adjective? It is something that describes a noun, isn't it? So I'm not talking about the anicca-ness of the pen. I'm talking about anicca. I'm talking about anicca. It is what it is. And it is what is. Now then think about Nietzsche, which is the opposite of this. Think about Nietzsche. Why is it when we think about pleasurableness or pleasure, it comes as a it comes as a couple, it comes paired with an object? Now the answer should be obvious to you. It comes paired with an object because the moment you start talking about fixed things, you are talking about things. So when you have to explain to somebody that something is Nietzsche, something is not a manifestation, but rather there are fixed elements, fixed objects. Yeah, of course, there are plenty of examples I can give you that fit the bill. So I can say, this is Nietzsche, this is Nietzsche, you know, my arm is Nietzsche, this fan is Nietzsche, this table is Nietzsche, right? Of course, this is not true. None of this is true. All of this, I'm, I'm, this is, these are all lies. This is all falsehood. But I can give you plenty and plenty of examples. So therefore, whenever this drushti of nature comes into the mind, it comes with something else. Now, even if you think of nature as being this, this sensation of pleasure, right? So if anicca is, a, is, the, is the realization of vexation, think of nature as being the, the realization of pleasure. Okay, even if you think that pleasure exists in this world, then this, this idea of pleasure comes coupled with an object. If I say, what brings you pleasure? You have an answer. What brings you vexation? Now you can't talk about an object. Attachment brings you vexation. It is not rooted in an object. It is based in attachment. And attachment is a function of the mind. So this is why whenever we talk about nature, you, you always have something that you're thinking about. If you, if you think that something gives you pleasure, you're always thinking about something. And therefore, fixed things are always attributes of, or fixedness is always an attribute of a thing. This is why, in your mind, you're always able to compare two things. You're always able to compare two things. As long as your drushti is that of nicca, sukha and atta. This comparison happens in the mind. And that is how you get pleasurable feeling, unpleasurable feeling, and vexatious feelings. Sapadukkan Upeksha Vedana. So, our practice then should be, ladies and gentlemen, to try and, whenever you see these objects around you, remember we are not dealing, we are not talking about fixed, we are not talking about actually the material things here, we are talking about the perception that you have towards these things, right? I think that's clear to all of you. We are talking about the perception. 
So this, you know, this is an arrangement that exists in this world. What there doesn't, what, what there, what there does not exist here is a fixed rose. But what there is here is an arrangement. I don't mean the flower arrangement. I, I mean just arrangement. It's an arrangement. What is the difference between this pen and this pen? Just a different arrangement. So therefore, can this pen never become this pen? Well, it can. You just need to rearrange materials. Rearrange matter. So the, that's why I always give you this example. You know, you all ate from the same rice pot this morning. Right? If you live together at home, you all eat the same food that is cooked. Right? Before you eat the food, you can't see yourselves in there, can you? You can't say, this is me, this is my wife, this is my, my daughter, my, my, my pet dog. You, you can't say those things by looking at a rice pot, but you all eat the same rice. But at some point, this matter, when it's rearranged, you begin to perceive it as you. Logically, you must realize now then that there is, you know, something somewhere down the line, it's wrong. We can't really, we can't really perceive it in this way. It must be wrong. It can't be so. Water you put into the fridge, at some point it becomes ice. What has become? What has become is a different arrangement. That is why you can take the ice and leave it outside and it becomes water again. It's just a different arrangement. So it was never ice, fixed ice. It was just an arrangement. So can you see the world now as arrangements? At least, you know, while you're here. Right, look at any, anything in this room. Look at the Buddha statue, for instance. Hmm? All of you, if you can look at the Buddha statue right now. When you look at this, you feel that there's an object here. An object that is separate from everything else. So in fact, if we were to drop this, right, and say the Buddha statue breaks by the neck, you'll feel that the Buddha statue is broken. But none of the, none of the elements in this statue know that it is broken. It doesn't perceive that. So if the elements that make this up don't know that it is broken, and all they are doing are just sitting next to each other, and they don't even know that, right? So, but we think that it's broken. We think it's broken because this arrangement, we give it a shape on the outside. We give it a fixed frame. We frame things. And the moment you give this a frame, and you fit it into that frame, now when things, when the arrangement changes, this is exactly what happens. Take the arrangement. So here's the Buddha statue. Right? What's in here? Matter. What's here? That's also matter. We call this gas. We call this call this solids. Okay? Let's say we just we wash the statue. Now you'll have gas, you'll have water, liquid, and you'll have solid. Okay, simply because of the, the strength with which the, 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 these molecules, they, they are attached to each other, you give them a different name. So we've washed the Buddha statue and we put it back in there. Now you have gas, you have liquids, and you have solids. Just arrangements. 
do you think that this molecule here has a particular attachment to this than it does to this? Can you see what I'm drawing here? I'll, I'll take three right, different colors. Good. Okay. So here's a molecule from the Buddha statue. Here's the water molecule. Because we've just washed the statue. And here's an air particle. The air is outside. Okay? Now you know, because this is the Buddha statue. There's another one here, another one here, another one here. And of course this, because this, it's, it's got water all over it. What do you know that none of these particles do? What do you know that none of these particles do? Yes. What they belong to. They don't know that. None of these particles know that they belong to the statue. These black particles, they don't know that they belong to the statue. <clears throat> the red particles don't know that they belong to the water, to the liquid. The blue particles don't know that they belong to the gas. So now just say, let's just say, we, now they're all stood like this. Okay, let's say they all had little legs and they could run around if we gave them a command. And we say, right, on the count of three, disperse. And say, one, two, three. Do you think these three, these three are going to hold hands and run together? And the black ones are hold, going to hold hands and they're going to run in one direction? And the blue ones are going to run in another direction? The red ones are going to run in another direction? Do you think they're going to do that? No, why would they do that? They wouldn't do that because they don't know what they belong to. Now, let's just take this room, for instance. Say someone said, there's a bomb outside. Everyone run. The Swami says, we'll run up that way. Hmm? The Anagarika Mahatmas will go find their bus <laughs> to, to run that way. Huh? The Zravika Mahatmas will go run that way to the hall, wherever. Because you all belong to something, don't you? That's why. What is your identity, I ask you? See, now you have an additional layer, don't you? You used to all be devotees. But now you have an additional layer. You're either a Sravaka, a Sravika, Uvasi, and now there's Anagarika, Senior Anagarikas and Junior Anagarikas and Senior Monks and Junior Monks and Anagarikas and you know, to be monks. All part of our identities. Where we fail, ladies and gentlemen, is when we internalize that. That is where you fail. Don't ever let that happen to you. Say, so let's say in six in, in, in a year's time, okay, we'll have been doing this Ravaka program for a year or so. Right, we say, right, now we are going to identify our, uh, our Sravakas who have completed one year. Or Sravakas who have completed one year and instead of just one premat, we put another premat. Hmm? Or, or maybe we put one that goes around one shoulder and also goes around the other shoulder. Better, isn't it? 
like a little shawl. Huh? So you can stand out of the crowd. This is only an adornment. This is part of the uniform. But what if you become that? That's where the problem is. So who am I? Am I a monk? Who's asking this question? A mind is asking this question. So am I a higher ordained monk? Or a novice monk? What part of me became higher ordained? <laughs> so of course we went to Malvata. And we had a very auspicious procession there. right? And they had some formalities. And uh, we were required to you know, say a few uh, Pali stanzas and whatnot. Right? And then at the end of that, they proclaimed me a high ordained monk. What part of me became high ordained? <laughs> Think about it. So what part of you has become a Sravaka? Uh, you know, how, where did you jump that? You know, from being a lay person to a Sravaka, how did you make that jump? Were you, did you die and you were born again? What part of you changed? You know, one morning you were just, you know, uh, you know an Upasaka, and the next morning you were Sravaka. How did that happen? What changed within you? Did, did they take out all your blood and cleanse it and put it back in again? What changed? All these are external manifestations. Where you would fail is when you try to internalize that. So don't internalize these external manifestations. You can go to the, you know, you can go so far internalizing this, like thinking that these things belong to you. You know, we don't just stop at who we are. We even look at the things that we, that that are that are on our bodies, and we make them, we internalize them. You know, honestly, answer this question for me. That prayer mat that you have on your shoulder, whose is it? It's yours, isn't it? That answer comes to you naturally. That is a problem. <laughs> that is a real problem. Whose robe is this? Samin says. That's the problem. Someone who says that the robe is mine is not fitting to wear a robe. So whose hair is this? Bad example. Whose hair is this that you have on your heads? It's my hair. Hmm? Everything. You see how much we internalize? How many things out there, manifestations, arrangements of matter and even energy, we, we, we try to capture and put, and put a frame around it. This is why, when, if, if this statue were to break, let's just see what happens when it breaks. Okay, we drop this statue by, you know, by mistake, it's a mishap, and, and the statue breaks. Okay, so this is what happens. Now, what happens is, instead of this, you have this. Isn't it? What's here now? Hmm? Yes, this air molecules. 
That is what breaking is. So now, this no longer belongs to this, does it? Or does it not? Why do you think it, has, it is broken now? You think it's broken because this is supposed to belong to this. They're meant to be together. They have to be together because you have a frame in mind. In that frame, these things are supposed to be together. See, this is why this looks nice to you. This is a bouquet of flowers. These flowers are meant to be together and you call it a bouquet. So if you have to take one of these flowers and put it here, you will feel that I have taken something that belongs to this and put it to a side. You can't stop feeling this way, can you? Can you? No, it's very natural you feel this way. This is what Jati does. You know, first of all, you've got to identify that this is happening within you, right? This is, this is how it manifests. This is how you perceive Jati. You need to understand that Jati is happening within your minds. How do you know this? Think about how things tend to belong to each other. This sense of belonging, it's only a perception. It's not out there. So wherever you have this sense of belonging, you need to understand, this sense of belonging comes with a sense of togetherness. The sense of separation. Only things that are separated belong to them. You have, now you have money in your pocket. Maybe you might not have right now, but you know, you carry, you carry money. And then, you know, next door, they also have some money. The, the bank also has some money. You have a notion that the money that you have is yours. So this is where the, 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 the perception of theft comes in. Now, can an arahant steal? Why can an arahant not steal? Yep, because an arahant cannot perceive this, this idea of theft. He understands what theft is. Of course he understands what theft is. He will give a talk and say, don't, don't steal, it's bad. But what he cannot perceive, there are things that even arahants can't perceive. What he cannot perceive is this, is this notion or the internalization of separation. To him, there aren't, there aren't things in this world that belong to each other. They're just things, they manifest. Because he can't perceive that, he can never, he can, he can never conjure up an idea of theft. It, doesn't, it just doesn't work in him, it doesn't come up in his mind. Now what about death then? Do you think an arahant can kill? That's why they say Punya Papa Pahinas. An Arahant cannot is incapable of killing. Killing is not the action of taking an object and just you know slicing someone's throat or stabbing someone. That is not what killing is. Killing is a karma. Pranagata is a karma. For Pranagata or killing to happen, first you need to perceive that there's an, there's a living being here. That is one of the prerequisites of a pranagata. You have to perceive that there is a living being. So if you can't perceive a living being, then how can you kill? That's why he is incapable of killing. Yes, of course, an arahant can separate a body you know, into two parts. He can do that. Give him a knife, he can do that. You know, if he, if he was asked to, uh, you know, a dead body, right, and separate the arms, he can do that. But what he cannot perceive 
is a living being. And because you can't perceive a living being, he can't perceive a living being, he cannot perceive. This, this, this idea of killing cannot take place in his mind. And so this, and, and the same goes for theft. What about sensual misconduct? What do you think about that? Can an arahant engage in that? No, boy, because he's holy. Is that because he's virtuous? He's so good he doesn't do those things. <laughs> no, he's so good he can't do those things. Not he doesn't. He can't. You know, lust doesn't arise in his mind. So how can he engage in, 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 the, in that sort of conduct? You know, there are certain things that we are trying to become incapable of. Now, generally in life, we try and become more and more capable of things, don't we? We learn sciences, we learn, we learn, we take a training, right, to be able to to be able to do things, to become capable of things. But there are certain things in life we are trying to become incapable of, such as the unmeritorious deeds. Now, what about good things like giving, charity, giving something, right? What do you think? Can an arahant not give? What do you think? Yes, he can do the action, but why can't he give? Why why does dana, the, the, the punya karma does not happen? Because what are the what are the requisites for a punya karma? For a for a for a giving? Exactly. There has to be me giving it and there has to be someone else receiving it. That's why giving too can't happen in an arahant's mind, because there are no beings there. No no one to give and no one to receive. That's why it cannot happen. It does not compute in an arahant's mind. But he understands the action. You know, when you've let go of everything, what more is there to give? And last night, one of our monks, the Swami Nansi, who was going to be doing the Buddha Puja today, for the Dakineyo, he came and asked me this question. He said, Swami Nansi, why do we do this dedication of arms to the Mahasangha? You, you do that, don't you? Right. So after you offer the Buddha Puja, then uh, we invite a higher ordained monk to dedicate the arms to the Mahasangha. So he asked me, why do we do that? Why can't we just take the arms? Why, do they, why does it have to be dedicated to us? And then why do we have to release whatever the left portion is so that others can, can take it afterwards? I said, you are a bhikkhu, aren't you? I'm giving this young Swami an answer. You're a bhikkhu, aren't you? Yes. So if you're a bhikkhu, what belongs to you in this world? What belongs to you? Nothing belongs to you. <laughs> the rope maybe, and your arms bowl, but nothing in this world belongs to you. So if nothing in this world belongs to you, then you are not, you, you, you are not entitled to anything in this world. So therefore, for you to be entitled to something, it has to be dedicated to you. Otherwise, you are not supposed to consume it. That is why when... But it, it is not so in lay life. In lay, in lay life, we belong to Mara. And in Mara's world, we are all his children, so everything belongs to us. right? To share, to whatever. But once you step outside Mara's kingdom, and you go into the Buddha's kingdom, you know, as bhikkhus, nothing belongs to us. We are not entitled to anything. The only thing we are entitled to is the Four Noble Truths. Symbolically, right? the rope, the arms bow, 
these are the only things. And, you know, even the alms bowl, at the point of becoming a monk, as you will have seen, ladies and gentlemen, when we do the ordination ceremonies, you have to request it. <laughs> now, you'll, you'll, you might wonder, why does a young man who has to bring his own robes, he has to go find them himself, and then he brings it to a senior monk and says, please accept these robes. And then he said, now please give it back to me. <laughs> have you never wondered what, what is the meaning, you know, what is the meaning of this? If you already found your own robes, why, did you, why don't you just go and wear them? <laughs> what it symbolizes is, as a bhikkhu, nothing belongs to you unless it is given to you. This is what a bhikkhu is. Nothing belongs to you. I ask you again, what is this pen for? To write. Not to? Not to own. So if you have come to that understanding that this pen is simply to write and not to own, you are a bhikkhu as far as this pen is concerned. So how bhikkhu are you? Make a list of all the things that you use and ask yourselves, do I just use them or do I own them? Where do we start? Do you just use them or do you own them? Why is it so difficult for people to come into monkhood? Hmm? I speak to some of our listeners online as well at this point. Because they have a life that they have built up for themselves. It's very difficult to remove themselves from that life. Because there are things that they, that they belong to and there are things that belong to them. That is why they are not ready yet. Because they haven't become a bhikkhu. See, that's why I always say, a monk's attitude must come first, the monk's robe comes second. So if you're struggling, right, those out there, if you're struggling to come into, into the sasana, you wish to be here, you wish to be among noble companions, you wish to follow the Dhamma and practice it diligently until you get to your salvation and your, your attachments, your bonds are holding you back, it's because in those aspects, in those regards, you are not a bhikkhu yet. Because you feel they belong to you. This is why I keep talking about these concepts. So you understand that nothing really belongs to you. If nothing belongs to you, what must you let go? <laughs> Tell me. What is there to let go? If nothing belongs to you. All you have to let go is this idea that things belong to you. That is what you have to let go. Not the things. Because they are not yours to go. Let go anyway. But for as long as you think this is an object, now you have a way you deal with this object. I either like it, again it belongs to you, or you dislike it, that also belongs to you. Belonging to you by this sense, what I mean is, you know, you have an interaction with this. You feel that you have a relationship with this, don't you? Because we have relationships with things that belong to us. My friend or my enemy. Doesn't your enemy belong to you? Isn't that the bond that you have with this person, your random person? You think this is my enemy. Don't you don't you don't they belong to you now? They belong to you. How so? You have a relationship. What is a relationship? Enemy. That's a relationship. Friendship is not the only relationship. Sometimes, you know, those relationships are harder to break. Friendships are easy to get rid of. But when you fall out with someone, very difficult to get out of, isn't it? 
strong bonds, those are relationships. You know, again, you, 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 you attach yourself to this world. These are the bonds. This, this is the sense of belonging. So how is it that then you, you have these friends and foes? How do you see that there's a Buddha statue here? When, if we break this by, its, by the neck, hmm? if it breaks at this point, all that has happened is, there's, a, there's an air molecule here. Well, there was an air molecule here earlier. So why do you now say it's broken? There were air molecules all over the place. Why do you say now it's broken? Was it not broken earlier then? There were air molecules here, now there's an air molecule here. That's it. There was initially matter, solid, and there was liquid, and there was gas. Now there's solid, there's liquid, and then there's gas. But you say it's broken. You say it's broken because in your mind, ladies and gentlemen, you have this figure. This is the structure, this is the framing of a Buddha statue. You give it a shell, and in that shell, these elements are arranged. That's why when, if something like that were to happen to this, you say the statue is broken. That's why when things happen to you, you say you are broken. And then they, it brings you the grief. Right? If you know you, you have a say this saucer. Hmm? This is just solid. It's just matter. What's the difference between this and this? Just a different arrangement of matter. Right? But if you provide enough energy, what happens to matter? It takes a different shape. The only reason that this matter is held together, or in, in this one place, you know, when I move this, all of the matter moves with it. When I move it this way, all of the matter moves it this way, because of the, the bonds that they have with each other. Yeah? If I give enough energy, then the matter that is within this object will absorb that energy, and then they are free to move. Because what energy do I give them? I give them kinetic energy. If I give them kinetic energy, then these molecules are free to move. Right now, there isn't enough energy for them to move about independently. That's why they're bound together. But if I give it enough energy, now they're free to move. You know, that's why when you give enough energy to a solid, what happens? It becomes a liquid. Now they're free to move. You give it even more energy, what happens? It becomes a gas. Right? So the more energy you give, it starts to move around. Because when, when things have a lot of energy, what do they do? When you were children, what did you used to do? Run around. Why? A lot of energy. You still have a lot of energy, but you know that there's a certain decorum that you have to maintain when you're in, in public and among people. Right? But as a young child, you know, there are no, there are no restrictions, there are no restraints, right? lots of energy, so you run around. That's why, you know, young kids, when you want to put them to bed and they won't go to bed, what do you do? You do something to tire them out. Because when there's a lot of energy, you just move to move around, want to move around, right? The same thing with matter. So the only reason that these, these molecules are, are together, ladies and gentlemen, is because there isn't enough energy here for these particles to move around freely. So when we drop it, what happens? What happens when it drops? Yes. So this action, right? Gravity pulls this, pulls this down. And on, at the moment that this comes into contact with the flow, there's energy there. 
So there's potential energy in this object. As the, for the higher I lift it, there's, there's potential energy, right? That energy has to now be released. What energy? The potential energy that is in this object has to be released. So when I drop this object, that potential energy is absorbed by the molecules that make up this object. And in, absor uh, in absorbing those, that, that energy, what, does, what do these molecules do? They start moving around freely. So that is how you say this breaks. But it is only you who perceive that this has broken. Ask the molecules what they're doing. They're just absorbing energy and releasing energy. That's it. But you see these molecules arranged in this particular order. See, that's why you see this is chipped. Can you see? This cup is chipped here. Can you, do you actually perceive this as chipped? You do, yes. Why? Because it's supposed to be how? It's supposed to be even and smooth. But it's not, because you have a you have a model, uh, you know, uh, an al almost a um, what do you call them? Uh, a cast. You have a cast into which you put all material things. This is a model. You put you put all material things into a mold, even. Right? There's a mold into which you put all all material things that you see. This this flower, this is a mold that you have in your mind. So if I, if I took this flower and started taking off its petals, now you'll say, what Swaminas is doing? He's taking off the petals of the flower. Because in your mind, this flower has a certain shape. See, this is the separation I'm talking about. If your arm were to drop, just, you know, just, just like that, your arm drops, won't, won't you feel really weird about that? You'll feel that something's really wrong. This is not just scientific knowledge. This is not just medical knowledge that you have. You have even without your medical knowledge. If your arm just drops, you'll feel really, you know, some something really weird about it because you, your what you perceive is, this is a unit, and chaos has just come into this unit. But that is not so. None of these parts belong to you. That is why I can take your heart and plug it into someone else's body and it will still work because what does a heart do it doesn't it doesn't belong a heart just pumps blood around the body that's what a heart does so why do you say then don't break my heart uh, th well the point i was i was i was actually trying to make there was in the same way that you see what I'm trying to explain to you, ladies and gentlemen, is there's matter here, and you understand that. You know, there's matter here. And the reason that these molecules are together is because there is an element of energy, but not enough energy for these molecules to, to disperse. Yeah? Your bodies are the same. The reason that you are the way you are, you know, this shape that you take, is because there isn't enough energy for this body to disperse. Now, what happens when we drop this? The potential energy that is contained within this object has now got to be transformed into some other kind of energy. Part of it is sound. So actually it's not sound energy, it's actually vibrational energy. Like the air around it vibrates. The same thing that happens to this is what is happen, happens to the air around it. 
The reason this breaks is because some of the potential energy is converted to vibrational energy. Yeah? And that energy, sorry, that's really kinetic energy, the energy to do with movement. So the molecules that make this object, say carbons, let's say, say, right, those, the, the carbon molecules, they, attract, they, they absorb some of that energy and they start to move. Okay? And the same thing happens to the air that surrounds this object. That also starts to move. So when that air moves, there's, a, there's, there's all the air in the room that starts to move, right? And then the air that goes to your eardrum starts to move. And when that moves, your eardrum moves, right? There's no sound yet in the story. Then, then there's electrical impulses that go to your brain, and then your brain perceives those electrical signals as sound with the help of the mind, okay? <clears throat> so the same concept happens here, the same phenomenon. The particles that make this object also start to move. And when they start to move enough, what happens? They shatters. They move so far that they are no longer together. Now, the, the, the concept I'm trying to get across to you here, ladies and gentlemen, is when that happens to this object, you feel that the, this saucer has broken. I'm saying that is flawed. It hasn't broken. There was nothing to break. At an absolute level, all that has happened is two molecules that were, that were this close to each other, you know, they, they were vibrating. Everything is always in vibration. But there wasn't enough vibrational energy to move them apart. Now, as it dropped, so I'm talking about the two molecules that are in this object, okay? So two molecules that are vibrating like this. But as the, there was enough, there was a lot of potential energy in here. When this dropped on the floor, that potential energy was absorbed by these molecules and now they start to vibrate even further. Now they're vibrating like this. That's all that happened. Take that energy out of it again. You can bring them back together. And then they'll vibrate again like this. But for that, you need, a, you need some manufacturing process. You can't just you know, take the two parts, put them back together and expect them to be together. Right? That needs to go through a certain process because you need to... You need a process to take out the energy in these molecules and then bring them together. That is what the manufacturing process involves. So, so all that has happened is two objects that were in vibration absorbed a lot of energy so that now they are still vibrating, but only they're vibrating further apart. Because when you, when you vibrate a lot, you need a lot of room to move. Right? So when, they, when there's little vibration energy, they can be together because you know, they're not bumping into each other. But when you have a lot of energy, now you see, they need more room to vibrate. Give it more energy, now you need more room to vibrate, see? So now to make this vibration, half of this saucer should be the other, on the other side of the room, the other half should be on the other side of the room. Otherwise they won't have enough room to vibrate because of kinetic energy. See, that is what is happening. So why do you say that the saucer is broken? That is a flawed misconception because these molecules that make this up in your mind belong to a particular object. That separation is what I'm talking about. This is a jati dhamma. So in the same way that this happens here, we use this simile to explain to you what happens everywhere. Whenever you talk about things breaking, okay, whenever you think about talk about things breaking, do try and reflect on what we have learned today. Are they really breaking or is it simply two objects vibrating but now just further apart? That's all that's happening. But why do I perceive that it's broken? 
Why do you think that the Buddha statue is broken? These molecules were vibrating here, and now there's an air molecule that has come in between, and it's all still vibrating. You think it's broken because you framed it into an object. This is an object only in your mind. This is a separate object. It is separate to the, to the, to the cup. Uh, the source is separate to the cup. But, you know, keep them, the two of them together. Can't you see how close those molecules are to each other? The saucer and the cup, they're very close to each other. In fact, some of the solid particles here, some of the carbon of this, is, is in direct contact with some of the carbon here. But there's also air molecules around it. And those air molecules still have enough vibrational energy to keep, to, to be in between the, the solid particles. That's why when you lift this up, it comes up on its own without the rest of the object. You know, this is sounding like a physics lesson, but I'm only trying to get across the point that there are no physical entities in this world. This, this, this entity-based perception is what you project onto this world. It's not out there. But because jati happens in the mind, you can't stop feeling that way. You genuinely can't stop feeling that way. And it's okay that you feel that way. I'm not saying that, you know, right now you've got a 3, 2, 1, you've got to stop feeling that way. You need to think about why I feel this way. That's the next question to ask. Just ponder, why do I feel this way? When Swaminas has so clearly explained to us that all there is is matter that's in vibration, right? why do I still feel that this clip belongs to this pen? Why can't I stop feeling that way? So much so that if I take this clip out and plug it to a different pen, I feel that this clip, the, the clip that belongs to this pen has now been put on the other pen. Why do I feel this way? It's because of jati. Jati is a condition of the mind. It's a disease of the mind. Where the mind projects this unifiedness onto this world. And it make, makes you think that these, there are entities in this world. So again, the question will still remain. Okay, so that happens. What's the deal? So what? So what it ha if it happens like that? Now you have the answer, the 11 great fires. That is why we are talking about this. That is why we are dealing with this. That is why we have a problem with this. Because when the 11 great fires strike you, you can't just say, yes, it's just 11 great fires, right? I mean, they are 11 great fires. They're not 11 great soft drinks. <laughs> they are fires. They burn. That's why we cry. That's why we grieve. That's why we suffer. You know, so the Buddha gave an answer to suffering. Remember the four... Um, the views that he had, not the views, what do you call them? The, the four sights that he had, you know, before he left his lay life, that he saw a sick man, an old man, um, what do you call a dead man, and then he saw a mendicant. Right? So, you know, when he saw a sick man, he began to wonder, why do people suffer like this? When he saw the old man, people, he began to wonder, why do people suffer like this? You know, what is growing old? See, he asked a very important, very pertinent question. What, what, does, what, does, what does growing old actually mean? What does falling ill actually mean? What does death actually mean? You know, the, the scriptures might say that, you know, he saw them and then he just, you know, was very disappointed with worldly life and then he left. You know, we are talking about someone who has, you know, this is the man with the best IQ. Right? We are talking about the most intelligent human being we have ever seen. Right? He was not just disappointed. He wanted answers. He was a truth seeker. All his life in Sansara, what had, been, what had he been doing? 
looking for answers, seeking answers. He's looking for the truth. He's trying to understand death. He's not disappointed by death. He's trying to understand what, what does death actually involve? What is death? Not I your death. <laughs> He's like, what is death? What is decay? What is illness? So he went looking for those answers. So then he discovered what death was. Death is what the mind perceives when jati happens. That is when he stopped. He found the answer. So, you know, I think it's more sort of an insult to the Bodhisattva that he went around the kingdom, right, and he saw a dead man and he said, oh, what's the point? We're all going to die. Oh, useless. <clears throat> you know, because, you know, sometimes people say, <clears throat> yeah, you know, he's been living, what, for 20 odd years. Had he never seen a sick man? Hmm? Had no one in his family ever, ever passed away? You know, he had uncles and aunties. Uh, and grandparents and who, who not, what not, right? There were a lot of people in his kingdom. You know, one day there's a man, there's this uh, a servant. Next day he doesn't turn up. So don't you think he would have asked, where's that, where's that chap who comes and attends to me? Then what do you say? Well, he went missing. <laughs> I mean, how many people can go missing before <laughs> before the prince starts to wonder? <laughs> Why do people go missing like this? <laughs> <laughs> think about it. Right? Don't you think anyone in the in the kingdom ever even had a cough, or you know, or fell ill? You know, the, all these 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 illnesses that we have today and more. You know, they were there back then. You know, they had diarrhea, and they had uh, they had the flu, they had influenza, they had all sorts back then. Right? So when someone's got a high temperature, you know, the the prince would have gone and attended to them, and even he himself would have fallen ill from time to time. So this concept that, you know, he was completely, you know, hidden from the, this, this, this notion of illness and, and disease and decay, you know, I, I don't know, I, I just can't accept that. Because then, you know, he's been living a, a fantasy life. I, I don't think that's what the prince did. But here's, here's what he started to ponder. He saw illness and he began to ask a question, how does illness happen? What is illness? What is decay? What is death? Is it really what's happening out there? Or is it something else? He didn't have the answers, but he knew that he needed to find the answers. So that's when he went on a journey of discovery. What does death actually mean? What is death? And why is it when people die, people suffer? Is it something to suffer about? Is it, you know, the person who's dying, yes, if they suffer, understood. But what about the people left behind? Why do they suffer? Why do they grieve? Why do they cry? They're not the ones who are dying, so why do they cry? See, questions that the prince had. So he went looking for answers. I mean, just think about it. You try and put yourself in his shoes. Right? There's, a, there's an old man. This, the doctors have given him, what, two months right, left in his life. People around him, they're crying. I, oh, yeah, we are going to lose our, our, you know, our brother. Someone saying, I'm going to lose my son. The other saying, I'm going to lose my husband. Right? People are crying. Now the prince is one, sat there wondering, hold on a second. This man is going to die. Why is this man crying? Yeah, any young child would ask this question, wouldn't they? 
you know, young children, they're very curious. Right? As an adult, we think this is, you know, obvious. These are obvious questions to us. But as a young child, imagine if you took a young child, really young child, you know, naive about the world. They don't know, they don't understand much. You took them to a hospital. Okay, maybe say a six-year-old, a five-year-old, you took them to the hospital and there's a man on his, on his bed. The doctors have just come and announced that they have pronounced that they've only got two months left and everyone standing around the bed starts crying. Isn't this kid going to ask you, Mom, why are they crying? And then you say, because the doctors have said he can only live for another two months. Yes. So why are they crying? Because he's going to die. Okay, so why are they crying? <laughs> He's going to keep asking this question because it doesn't make sense. So other he might ask you, sorry, who's going to die? The people stood around the bed, they're going to die. No, 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 the man on the bed is going to die. So why are the others crying? If it's not something happening to them, why are the others crying? You know, a kid would ask this question and it's a very valid question. What answer do we give them? <laughs> How does death to one cause suffering to another? How is it that when energy splits this into two, in fact, there's enough vibrational energy in these particles that they, now, they still continue to vibrate, but just further apart from each other, why do we feel that it has broken? How do we connect ourselves to events that happen in the outside world? What is this relationship that we form with outside world entities? You know, that is the problem. You form these relationships with the outside world objects, events, things that happen out there. You know, sometimes things that happen in faraway lands, you know, in other countries, you know, it still brings you fear and grief and worry. How so? These are these emotional bonds that we form. Emotional bonds formed out of jati. Because when we have an expectation that we said, this is an expectation. Don't you think this is an expectation? Exactly. That's the point. Don't think expectation is about what's going to happen tomorrow. Mummy said that she will cook me some ni- something nice tomorrow. That is not the only expectation. This is an expectation. Don't you see an expectation on the board? Where else do you see expectations? That's why sometimes people come and say, Raminas, I've been listening to the sermons now for three years. I don't have any expectations. So come and ordain. No, I have my wife, she is you know, to sort her out. The moment you say wife, that is an expectation. Ladies and gentlemen, let me show you an expectation. This is an expectation. You expect this pen, this clip to be on this pen. That is an expectation. You expect there to be a pen here. You expect the matter that go into making this object to be together. That's why when I split this in half, you go, ouch, it hurts you more than it hurts the pen. So your expectations. Remember the first or the second sermon we did long, long, long time ago. Expectation is the biggest culprit. Many, 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 many years ago. This is expectation. These are all expectations. When you hold your hand up in the morning, I look at it, there's an expectation. You expect the thumb to be here. What if, you know, the next morning you wake up and the thumb is somewhere here? <laughs> How would that leave you? Distraught, because your expectations have been 
you, know, you have been turned into a disappointment. Yes, you can learn to expect that now from here on. Right? That's another expectation. So we just keep jumping from one expectation to, expectation to the next. That's why when your mother is alive, you want her to be alive. But once she's dead, what do you want? <laughs> Shall I say that again? When your mother is alive, you want her to be alive. But when she's dead, what do you want her to be? Dead. <laughs> Please don't come back. <laughs> See? Expectations. How wicked you all are. <laughs> what if your dead mother comes back today? You don't want that, do you? I mean, just think about it at the funeral. And people are stood around the, around the coffin. Everyone's crying. Ayo, my dear husband, why did you leave me? Please come back. <laughs> and then what if he just wakes up? Yes, you called me, honey. <laughs> this expectation I'm talking about is expecting, ex expecting a fixedness. I mean, I'm talking about expectation at the most primitive level, ladies and gentlemen. You expect things to be fixed. When you project something from your mind, you expect that to be there. That is an expectation. You want the living to be living, you want the dead to be dead. Expectations. The expectation for a fixedness. Expectation of entities. Expectation of units. These are all expectations because the mind is constantly expecting that. And then you deal with them. You either like them, you dislike them, you compare them. Yeah, this is what life is all about. Spot them. That is what these sermons are for. Right? We're all here because we have a problem. Fair enough. If you don't have problems, don't come here. You're here because you have a problem. So as I, as I explain these concepts to you, try and spot them within you. I know, I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to uh, mesmerize you by, by, by giving you all this Dhamma and say, wow, Dhamma is wonderful, isn't it? That's not the deal here. As you listen to these talks, right, contemplate, isn't this a problem that I have? Don't I see the world as fixed things? When things break, don't I suffer? When people die, don't I grieve? Why is that? It's because I expect things to be, you know, to, to belong to something. That is an expectation. This sense of belonging is because you feel you belong to you. That's why. That is at the root of this. You know, every cell in your body belongs to you. Just think about it, right? You know, let's just say you've just been to the barbers. Okay, you had your hair cut. Okay, and that the barber, the, the barber's done the trimming your hair and your hair is now on the floor. Now you can see that your hair is on the floor. Right, someone comes into the, into the barbershop and they start treading all over it. Right? Honestly, aren't you going to tell me that, you know, there's, there's, there's this tiny sense of resentment. Why are you stepping on my hair? Please, Baba, sweep it out because before someone else steps on it. You feel that because it's your hair. No, I'll prove this to you. Shall I prove it to you? 
say you've just uh, you've ordered something at the restaurant and there's a strand of hair in your food you feel repulse repulsion towards it but if it's your own hair you don't feel the same you know you cooked at home and so you know it's your hair it's not the same feeling you go to the restaurant and they bring you a dish and there's a strand of hair in there are you going to tell me that they both feel the same way to you certainly not why because one hair is my hair the other hair is somebody else's hair see i'm telling you you have a problem <laughs> when was when did hair ever belong to someone what is hair it's this just protein it's just keratin <laughs> which is a protein it's the stuff that you put into your body where did that come from it came from the stuff you ate so at which point did it become your hair but these are the places you suffer you suffer when this happens see i now ask yourself why do i suffer like this isn't this unnecessary suffering focus your thinking on this ladies and gentlemen like i said right at the start of this talk you know we're talking about anicca here we're talking about anatta here we're actually talking about dukkha here as well we're talking about all three without me actually spelling those words out to you i may not be saying anicca dukkha and anatta but i'm talking to you about anicca dukkha and anatta it's not the word that matters i am actually talking about anicca dukkha and anatta anicca is a nature that we need to understand you know a metaphor would be someone asked me you know what is the connection between these three how how do we how do we see them in relation to each other think of a mirage think of a mirage for a second we all know what a mirage is yeah puta you know what a mirage is well done so think of a mirage in a mirage what do you really have water now there is no water what there is is air we understand that air has this has a phenomenon called convection when air molecules heat up you know again there's energy right those air molecules absorb this energy and they start to vibrate very rapidly and as a result of that what vibrates goes up take the energy out of something it drops down to the floor see put energy it rises to the top take out energy it drops yeah so in the same way that is how convection happens now when you when the sun's is when the sun is so hot and there's a lot of energy being pounced on the earth and and the air starts to absorb that energy now it starts to rise understanding this concept is is like understanding anicca that it is air and air has this this phenomenon of of uh, convection and what what really happens is air molecules absorb this energy they start to vibrate understanding this is like understanding anicca what is dukkha then seeing a mirage dukkha is seeing the mirage so what is anatta then the understanding that it's not water it's not water because when you see a mirage what do you think you see you you're seeing water right when you see a mirage you think you're seeing water because actually you you're tricked yeah it's a, it's a trickery you think you're looking at water anatta is like the understanding that it is not water but what is it then that is what anicca explained to you anicca is the understanding that this is air absorbing energy expanding convection all that phenomenon mirage 
Dukkha. The fact that it is not water. Anatta. So Anicca Dukkha and Anatta. Now take it to any concept here. Anicca. See, I am explaining to you Anicca here. These are the molecules and they are in place because of the, the, the amount of energy that they have within them. Anicca. What is Dukkha? You are seeing a statue. You are perceiving a statue. Dukkha. Anatta. It's not really a statue. It's not really a statue. What is it? Well, what we explained when we explained Anicca. That is what it is. So Anicca and Anatta are very closely related to each other. When you, think, when you start talking about Anicca, you can't help but talk about Anatta. When you start talking about Anatta, without an understanding of Anicca, it doesn't make sense. So, you know, in the Girimananda Sutta, if any of you have done any reading, it talks about the Anicca Sanya. It talks about the Anatta Sanya, but it doesn't talk about the Dukkha Sanya. Because the Sanya is what you need to practice. That you contemplate on that. You, you reflect on the anichaness of something. The, the more you reflect on anichaness, you come to the understanding that this is dukkha. Once you understand this is dukkha, that is when the letting go happens. Letting go of what? Not letting go of things. Letting go of the expectation. The expectation of there being things. The expectation of sukha. That is what you let go. What is sukha? Sukha is not necessarily pleasure. Sukha is this, this sense of self. Sukha is self. But there is no self, really. But you are, we are fooled, aren't we? Until you understand that this is dukkha, you, you think this is sukha. So sukha meaning self. And then, you, when once we listen to the Dhamma, we are elevated from a, from, an, from a perception of self to sense of self. You understand the two are different, right? Initially, you thought this was self, sukha. Now you realize, the way you feel hasn't changed one bit. You still sense the same way, but you know what you're sensing now. Yeah, now you know what you're sensing. It's like, imagine you had your, hand, your arms, your hands to the back tied. That's, all you, that's how you've always known. Oh, let me give you a simpler example. Say you're born blind. You're born blind, right? And you can't see the world. Of course, you're born blind, you can't see the world. But then people are talking about sights, they're talking about color, they're talking about objects. And then you begin to wonder, what are these things that people are talking about? There's someone saying red, someone saying blue, someone saying yellow. What is this people are talking about? And they say, well, you know, we are talking about these concepts and you will never understand them. Yes, so why? Because you're blind. What do you mean blind? It means, you know, feel your, feel your, feel your face, they'll tell you. Right, can you feel your face? Right, you have this nose, right? Yeah, a little further up, you have these things. Like these, these are called eyes. You know, here's how you'll have to explain to someone who's born blind what blindness is. Yeah. So, can you see, feel these objects up there? You know, these these organs, these things. Although you don't think that they are doing anything specific, for us, they give you this sense of sight. Meaning, just like your nose tells you that there are things that smell, there are things that give you color. You can, obviously, you can't understand what color is, but that is because you these organs that you have, they don't work in your case. So that is how you're going to have to try and explain to someone what blindness is. You know, there's an organ that is supposed to work, but in your case, it's not working. 
Yeah? So, you know, in that, in that way, when you try to explain to someone, this, this nature of anicca, what is this anicca? You're trying to explain to them something that they have not yet understood. Because once you've, once you've understood anicca, you, need to ex- you don't need to explain to them what anicca is. So until then you have to explain to them. So, I'm talking to you about the relationship between anicca and anatta. Right? Anicca is what you see when you start seeing the light, when you, when you start seeing the world in color. We are not blind, so we see the world in color. We see the world in its full, full color. But once you, if you are born blind, now you don't see that color. You don't see what's out there. But that is not how the world really is. The world is full of color. There is, um, don't think of the color that you said, not, that's not out there. This, this is a different analogy, okay? So the world is full of color. You know, things are bright. You know, there are objects that you can see. Not how you think the world is. It's actually full of color. But you're trying to explain this concept to someone who is blind. They can't understand this, that the, the, the world is full of color until they start to see. So in the same way, you, don't understand, you may not understand what anatta is until you start to see what anicca is. Because once you understand what anicca is, you realize that what there is are these, these elements, this matter, because of energy, they're just held together in, in, in a certain place. They're just located together. That's all. Until and unless you understand that, you think the world as being atta, meaning there are entities, fixed things. That is why the Buddha statue breaks, because it's one Buddha statue. See, the whole thing is one, isn't it? Because this matter that goes into making this, you put a frame around it. That is the expectation. Hmm. Uh, that is one meaning of it, so, so you can't, I can't, I can't deny that. <clears throat> but what's okay? If you if you want to take that interpretation of it, what purpose does it serve? Yeah, yeah. So so it serves the purpose of being separate. That is what the mind expects of all things in this world, isn't it? You know, if <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They they, they are. We are talking about three characteristics of all manifestations. Okay? This is a pen to you and me. Take, take the mind but for a second though. Before this is a pen, this is something else to the mind. If I ask you what purpose does this serve, you will say it serves the purpose of writing. But before it serves the purpose of writing, it serves another purpose. It serves the purpose of being separate. Because that is the mind's most primitive requirement. It serves the purpose of being separate, atta. That purpose it serves. Secondary purpose is writing. And there are various other purposes you can, you can use it as a paperweight. You can use it to throw at someone if they're sleeping in a sermon. That's, that purpose it serves. But what is the most primitive purpose it serves? The most basic purpose being separate. Because that is what the mind expects of it. 
But but why why does it serve that purpose? Does it actually serve that purpose? Does this object serve that purpose? No, it doesn't. But the mind thinks it serves that purpose. So why does the mind think it serves that purpose? Because the mind doesn't hasn't understood that this is by its very nature anicca. I'm talking about the noun anicca. So I'm not saying this is anicca. Anicca-ness is the natural phenomenon, is the natural state of affairs. Anicca-ness is what is out there. It says anicca. That's what's out there. We talk, anicca means, here's what anicca means. Anicca means, then you will wonder, well, what have you been talking about right now? Until now you're saying this is what anicca means. Anicca means, things in this world, not things, matter, energy, there are combinations of this matter and energy, and they take various configurations. They take various arrangements. And they'll always keep on taking arrangements, but they don't know what arrangement they're taking. They don't have an they don't have an agenda. If you asked a bunch of people to come into this room without telling them what we are going to do, they'll just walk around the room. You know, one person will go and take a seat there, another person will come and stand up here, two people will go and they start start having a chat, you know, a few more people will come and come, come here wondering what to do, right? Until you say, right, everyone, but we are gonna we're gonna sing a song. Like everyone come together, please. See, now you're putting an arrangement to it. But even without that, you know, if you scan, if you looked at the way that people are stood around the room, right, that is an arrangement as well. That's why last week I asked you, what is the wrong arrangement? You know, is, is this wrong? If I took this lid and, and put it on this pen, is that wrong? <laughs> If it, was, if it is wrong, then how can that be even possible? So that's why they say, you know, to borrow the, uh, from another faith, it is God's will. Yes. In other words, that is how Vipaka is meant to be. Inshallah. <laughs> that is God's will. If Vipak is meant to be this way, it will be this way. And it is why it is this way. If you take this lid and put it on this pen, this is God's will. What is God? Vipak. This is wrong. If it was wrong, how come it is so? But of course we don't leave it this way. Because we as human beings, we as individuals with a mind that can take on drushti, we understand that if it, were, if, it, if it was in this way, soon enough this pen will render itself unusable because the nip is going to dry. If, it, if that does happen to this, is that wrong? The pen dries out. Is that wrong? It's not wrong. But we have a specific purpose for this pen. And for that purpose to be served, this pen should not dry out. Therefore, we find a clip that can actually cover it properly. That is our expectation that we lay down on material objects. But for the pen, it's perfectly fine if it dries out. For Vipaka, no problem at all. You know, God doesn't care. I shouldn't say that. (laughs) The universe doesn't care whether people are fighting or at peace. The universe doesn't care. Whether there is chaos or there is order, the universe doesn't care because it is all part of the same universe. You know, there's going to be a day where this whole world destructs. 
It's going to blow into smithereens. Do you think the universe is going to care about it? No. Who cares then? People who have expectations, they care. Because that is the natural order of things. Give enough energy, right? things disperse. Take out energy, they come close to each other. Any two things from which you take out energy, they can come, to cl- come close together. Do you remember that long time ago, in the time of the Buddha, how many Arahans used to live together in the same monastery? Think about this. Many? Hundreds, if not thousands of Arahans. We've heard these stories, haven't we? Now ask yourself the question, how come so many people live together? Here's the answer. Two particles can be together when they have very little energy. But when they're so vexed, they can't be together. Because I want to be going like this. This one wants to be going like this. I want more space. I want more space. Why are you in my space? Why are you encroaching my personal space? Get out. (laughs) See? So those days, hundreds of thousands of Arahans used to live together in the same monastery. Because they were settled. They were at peace. Tranquil. Serene. No excess energy. Because whatever energy they had, they used in the service of mankind. So they, they were not, it was not their objective to capture all that energy. But what, do, what, you know, what does the Prutakjana do? Just think about it. What does the Prutakjana do? Think about someone who works on building their bodies. Please, no insult to anyone, okay? I'm just speaking my mind out because this is the Dharma Asana. I have nothing again. I used to go to the gym, right? All right, clear? <laughs> I used to go and do weights, right? So I, I know the feeling, right? Think about someone who wants to build up their bodies by doing weights and, you know, resistance training and whatever. What are they trying to build up? Themselves. They're trying to build up themselves. What about someone who keeps buying land and property and so on? What are they again trying to build up? Themselves. See, energy. This is energy. Energy that is being used to build up oneself. Because I have to stand strong. I have to stand, I have to stand, you know, uh, over and above everyone. So therefore, my lot should be big. As big as big can be. But when all the energy that you have is used in the service of others, how much did Mahatma Gandhi have, I ask you? (laughs) How much did he have? He had a walking stick, a tourniquet over his body. That's all he had. Very little. Because that energy is used in the service of others. But when you use energy in the service of yourself, now your lot has to keep growing. Your lot has to keep increasing. That is why in those days many Arahans were able to live together. Because all they needed was just enough room for their bodies to be located. The mind didn't need any space. So if you had two Arahans, you know, say a hundred Arahans sleeping on you know, one next to the other, they would have no problem about that. But think about the normal Prutakjana. How big must a bed be for one person? King-size bed. Why do they call it a king-size bed? Who's the king? 
Think about it. One man, but king size bed. <laughs> Where's that size? Yes. In their minds, they're a king. So when I'm at least on my bed, I have to be king, mustn't I? <laughs> because when I step outside, nobody gives a damn. So, so at least when I'm, when I'm on my bed, I have to be king. So it has to be a king size bed. A bed big enough for a, for a king. Think about it. You know, how much energy goes into building a house? You know, you'll know this, ladies and gentlemen. How much energy goes into building a house? And, then, and the more stories it has, the more rooms it has, the more bathrooms it has, the more features it has. If it has a basement, right? if it has a rooftop, right? if it has a veranda, right? if it has a large garden, all of this requires energy, right? And what is this energy being used for? Remember the other day I asked you, how many dishes have you washed? Before you became a Zila Shavika and started helping out with the noble hearts. All those dishes you washed, all those meals that you cooked at home, all for you. Right? So all that energy being used, being utilized for yourself. So the more energy you, you, you capture, this is energy that belongs to the universe. You're capturing this energy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like a cell, you're capturing this energy. This energy doesn't belong to you, but you're trapping it. That is why God punishes you then. Things that belong to everyone, you capture for yourself. But God is fair and square. He gives enough for us to sustain ourselves. He gives, there's enough food in this world for everyone. Actually, there's enough food for one and a half times the world's population for the next 50 years. There's enough food. But why are people starving? Because when one person needs more than their fair part, hmm? when you need a fridge and you have to fill it up with these things you need for tomorrow, for next week, when you have a barn and you have to keep enough for the future, see, now you're trying to trap. Because food is energy, isn't it? Food is energy. Energy that belongs to the universe. So when you trap energy, now there becomes there's a competition. Who can trap the most energy? So in this world, who are the victors? Those who can trap the most amount of energy. Think about who's a king. A king is someone who is able to trap and have at his command a lot of energy. Because energy is all there is in this universe. So a king has his peasants, he has his subjects. This is also energy. The farmers, what, what are the farmers? Energy. Energy means the ability to do something. Heat energy is the energy to heat. Light energy is the, is the energy to light up. Right? Vibrational energy is the energy to vibrate. So energy is the ability to do something. So a king is someone who commands a lot of energy. So the more you think about yourself, the more you begin to trap this energy for your use, the more you are at odds with nature and the less you are happy. Because you know what nature is always trying to do? Take back what belongs to it. Ladies and gentlemen, do understand this. The more you think about yourself, you're picking up a fight with nature, with Mother Nature. This is a fight you will never win. Because you will live and you shall perish, but Mother Nature will always prevail. She will always take back what belongs to her.
take more than your fair share and she will take it back from you. Even your bodies, one day she will take it back. Yeah. So every time you strive to build up your lot, to make bigger what you have, remember you're at odds, you're in a fight with nature. Nature will always have it her way, she will take it back from you. That's why the winds will come and take some of it with it. The fire will come and take some, some of it with it. The water will come and take some of it with it. Earthquakes will, will come and take some of it with it. Old age will come and take some of you with it. Ultimately, death will come and take all of you with it. That's what nature does. So it's pointless to have this, this, this fight with nature. To become one with nature is to accept that you are also a child of Mother Nature. If you succumb yourself to nature, if you surrender yourself to nature, nature will provide everything. Nature will provide everything. That is what becoming a bhikkhu is. Nothing belongs to me. Nothing belongs to me because I belong to nature. So if I belong to nature, what do the things that belong to me belong to? Nature. So then what belongs to me? Nothing belongs to me. Bhikkhu. But what is the the lay attitude? How much can I belong? How much can I make mine? How much can I can I have to my name? How much land do I have? How much property do I have? How many houses do I have? How many cars do I have? How many members in my family do I have? Uh, bigger, better. That is, the, that is the lay attitude. But the more you do that, remember you're waging a war against nature. She'll always have it her way. Because, you know, against her, you're just a puny, insignificant nothing. We all are. We are just nothings in, in the face of nature. Because nature is anicca. Nature is anicca. Although we think that this is a pen and I have it and this is my expectation, remember all there is is just matter arranged in a certain way. It is That is nature. And you know, you can set your own agenda on this, but remember it is nature who will have it her way. When she decides that it is enough, it's time for these, these molecules to disperse, they will disperse. You can try and keep it together. That you can try and make effort to keep it together. Right? But remember, you're fighting against her. You will never win this war. You know, despite all the things that human beings have been, have been trying to do, to live forever, right? they're, they're trying to become immortal. Has that become possible at all? No. You can try and extend your life. This, this extending of life is also you know, something that people think they're doing because you know, of medical advances and so on. But really, our average age span has now reduced from what it used to be. Our grandparents, you know, great-grandparents, they used to live, what, for 100, 110, you know, living up to 110, sometimes even 112, 15. You know, this, is, this was not uh, unusual many 20, 30, but, you know, 50 years ago. People used to live that long. But nowadays, you know, to try and live, what, for 70, that is also, you know, quite a challenge. But due to medical science, we have been able to extend our lives, but we are artificially extending our lives. It's not natural. So what is Mother Nature trying to do? Take back what belongs to her. What we are trying to do is, no, 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 keep it, keep it, keep it. I want it. 
And the more you do that, the more you will suffer. Because natural tendency is to, is to take back. Now you have to keep fighting. It's like, if this was a... Here's what Mother Nature does, right? Here's a steep hill. You have a rock. Okay? Mother Nature says, give it back. You're up down here, trying to hold this up. Here's what old age is. This is what Mother Nature does. She increases the incline. Old age. He says, okay, now are you going to give back? <laughs> How much more energy do you think this guy is going to have to put in to keep it up there? Many times more, right? Then the guy says, no, I'm still going to be here. I'm still fighting back. Science, 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 science all the way. <laughs> Mother Nature says, okay, I can want better that. She increases the incline. <laughs> And at one point, it goes like this. Now, there's no ground to stand on, so you drop. You drop dead. This is where you started. Mother Nature will always have it her way. The sooner you are prepared to give up, the less you have to struggle. If you are prepared to give up here, you know, she says, give it back. Very little energy you need to hold it there. But at this point, you're putting every ounce of energy in your body to hold, just to hold this up in place. Just to hold it up in place. You're putting every ounce of energy in your body. Now, the, the more inclined the, this, this slope is, you know, that is all you have to do now. You have no time or, or peace of mind to do anything else. Now ask yourselves, is that not what life has become for you? There are certain things in life you're having to maintain. You've, you've sacrificed your happiness. You sacrifice your time. You sacrifice your children. You sacrifice your family. You sacrifice everything you have just to maintain that. Some people, because they want a big house, get, an, get themselves a nice car, you know, have themselves a nice job. You know, how much have they actually sacrificed? Just to, just to build a house, some people will sacrifice 20 years of their life. Youthful life. Life that they can be spending with their children and just be happy. Mother Nature is saying, give it back, give it back. Oh no, I'll fight until the end. What you don't know is you're also on the slope. It's not just the rock, you are also on the slope. So as the, as, as the incline gets high, steeper and steeper, it is not just the object that is due to flow, due to roll down, but also you that's standing on, that, on the ground. You're also meant to... Meant to Roll back down. This is, the, this is the lay attitude. No, I'm always going against Mother Nature. I will have it my way. That is why they call it Pavidi. Your Vidi is your way, my way. To let go of that way, my way, I'll have it my way. Let go of your way. That is Pavidi. Let go of your way and surrender to nature's way. Then there's no grief, there's no fear. Look at how much fear must be in this person's mind. What if, what if, what if, we're probably sweating head to toe. Just, just fighting to keep that in place. And not just him, not just the ball, not just the, the rock, but himself as well. He's also on the incline. This is what lay life is, ladies and gentlemen, or at least a lay attitude is. But with lay attitudes, generally comes a lay life, a lay lifestyle. 
And in there, there are so many things that you have to maintain. Ask yourselves this question when I, when I speak this to you. Is that not so? Think about all the things that you're having to maintain right now. Now compare that to my life. What must I maintain? What must I upkeep? Nothing. I do my duty, but it doesn't bother me. When Mother Nature says, give it back, ah. <laughs> soon as you want it, here you go. I say, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> you step aside and let her have it, have her way. Of course, you know, we keep these places in, you know, in prim and proper. We keep them tidy, we sweep and we, you know, we clean the place and we keep it neat and, you know, usable for people. But, you know, we don't have any problem with Mother Nature taking her, her share of it. Let's just say tomorrow there's a cyclone and the, and the roof gets blown away. You come on the following day, you think I'm going to be sitting here crying, my eyes out. Oh, look at this, you know, all the time and effort we put into building this place and the roof has blown away. But have you not seen how people, they weep and they lament and you know, they start eating the soil hmm? when, when, they, when something happens to their house? Because for them, for them to exist, they don't feel that nature is their home. Did you get that point? They don't feel nature is my home. So therefore they have to build a separate home. I am a child of nature. She is my mother. So nature is my home. I don't need a separate home. If nature can give me shelter when it rains, when she rains, if nature can give me shelter when she shines bright from the scorching sun, you know, a, a branch over my head is enough. And I just need food to sustain myself for today. That is why the Buddha says, you know, when you have enough in your arms, both stop going on arms. Because we are not supposed to take enough for tomorrow. <laughs> we don't do that. Why? Why don't we have to worry about it? If you surrender to nature, then she will make sure that you are fed tomorrow. She will make sure you are fed. All you have to do is take the arms bowl and go, on, go begging. So who are we begging from? Nature. Ask and you shall receive. <laughs> That's what we do. Ask. You stood outside your house, you know, Swami Nasa with the Nams, what do you do? You go and give, and what do you give? Leftovers? Come on. Leftovers? No. The best that you can find, right? <clears throat> Sometimes you even tell your children, Puta, Swami Nasa is here. Ami will cook for you again tomorrow. <clears throat> Shall we give, make this offering to Swami Nasa? Absolutely. See, Swami Nasa didn't have to go and find the best. The best has been brought to him. Thus I say, stop fending yourselves, stop defending yourselves, stop, stop fighting for yourselves, and you will win. There's only one way to win this battle, ladies and gentlemen, you have to accept defeat. That is the irony of this. If you keep on fighting, you will lose. Accept defeat, and you will win. Defeat against whom? Nature. Nature says, Anicca, accept it. Nature says, ready to disperse, accept it. Nature says, nothing is fixed, all our manifestations, accept it. Nature says, there are no fixed entities, so don't expect fixed things, accept it. But the ignorant mind, nature says, disperse. I say, no, 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 I want it all together in one piece. So now, okay, then fight for it. You're in the boxing ring with nature. 
How big is nature compared to you? <laughs> when you are also nature, when you are a product of nature, how can you fight your inner being? You are also a product of nature. How can you fight yourself? Your creator, how can you fight? <clears throat> because your creator understands everything about you. She created you. <clears throat> so how can you fight? So become a bhikkhu. I invite you all to become a bhikkhu. Those listening online, become a bhikkhu. If you want to know how, come here. We'll teach you how to. So you can be at peace. That's all, you know. It's not about monkhood, ladies and gentlemen. I'm talking about mental happiness. I'm talking about peace of mind. I'm talking about resting in peace while you're still alive. There's no other way you can do it besides the Buddha Sasana. <clears throat> this is the only teaching. <clears throat> this is the only teaching in this world where you can rest in peace while you're still alive. No fear, no grief, no disappointments, because no expectations. So I invite you all to become a big cook and enjoy the bliss of being one. <laughs> May you all be able to enjoy that as soon as possible. Let's conclude for today. I don't want to finish, but because I'm enjoying this. <laughs> but we have to go. All right, let us all take a moment to transfer all the maids that we have acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem Listening to the Dhamma and engaging in various meritorious today, first and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching. And with immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us also transfer these merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief priests of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that amongst them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us also transfer these merits to Guru Swami Nuhansay, as well as all the other monks resident at the monastery and the Anagarika and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer these mates and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them, and may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they have redeemed themselves to be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibban. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. There is also transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees, friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. Made by the power of these merits, they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to the spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. 
They resolve to take a moment to transfer these maids to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. By the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. There is also take a moment to transfer these merits to the devas and brahmanas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva as well as all the nimas, gods and deities who have committed themselves to protect and fulfill the Samadha Sasana. Let us transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. By the power of these merits, may they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble laid-fall path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to all those who have passed away in our name, our forefathers, our ancestors, and those who have predeceased us, reminding ourselves that in this infinitely long journey of sansara, they will all have sacrificed themselves in every way, shape, or form possible and available to them for our benefit and to our advantage. They will have shed blood, sweat, and tears on our behalf, and it is the fruits of their labor that we are able to consume today and enjoy the Dhamma, and practice the path to our salvation, reminding ourselves and being grateful to all of them. Let us transfer these merits to all of them. Let us also transfer these merits to those who make great sacrifices on our behalf, those who sacrifice their lives for the, to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. This includes the members of the armed forces as well as, well as the police force. Let us also transfer these merits to those who would have lost their lives in, in the war, be their friend or foe, as well as those who would have lost their lives in natural disasters such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, fires, blizzards, the pandemic and so on. Reminding ourselves that in this infinite long journey of sansara, they would all have been mothers and fathers to us, brothers and sisters to us, acquaintances to us, those who would have helped us, supported us, and assisted us in any way, shape, or form. Let us be grateful towards them for all that they have done for us and transfer all these merits to all of them. By the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, may they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, may by the power and blessings of all the means we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And may you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become a Rahatan Mahanse or not a Hatteranin Mahanse in this very life itself and in the eva of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. And the members of the Mahasangha will transfer their blessings to you now. Raga ginnen nidetnva Dvesha ginnen nidetnva Moha ginnen nidetnva Nibbana parma sukhayen Sukhita tarvetma Nibbana parma sukhayen Sukhita tarvetma Mamadasya luloka Sialu satnvayo Nibbana parma sukhayen Sukhita tarvetnva Nibbana parma sukhayen 
सुखित तार निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार राग गिनी द्वेष गिनी मोह गिनी निवान सब लबे वा निवान सब लबे वा निवान सब लबे वा तुन्वान के सूर्य नंत महागुण बेलेन सीलो लोक सीलो साथ रहो मैं निबान परम सुखें सुख दिता रहता साधु साधु साध